All right. Thank you. And good morning to everyone. I hope you are well. And as always, very thankful to be able to worship at the same time. Can't wait till we stop this virtual season. I am very much over it. I think after I realized it's been over a year. Uh, yeah, I just felt very fatigued, as I'm sure a lot of you do. Uh, if you're new or visiting again, we want to welcome you. Hopefully you're able to come check out our church in the flesh sooner than later. Uh, and as Pastor Tom mentioned, we do have the outdoor prayer gathering next week. And so, you know, if you are comfortable and you're able, I do encourage you to sign up. Uh, please come out as hopefully that could be the light at the end of the tunnel and a sign of better times and uh, this whole season coming to a close sooner than later. And so uh, that's that. And, and again, always Sunday Q&A is always a great time to delve into aspects of the message and the text that we couldn't necessarily get to in the sermon itself. So please stick around, even if you just want to listen. Uh, it's always been a fruitful and encouraging time for for us personally as speakers and pastors, but hopefully even for those that have been there. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we are going through a, a series. It's been a while now uh, since we started uh, through the book of Genesis. And just to recap for us, uh, the past three weeks, Pastor Tom basically really zeroed in uh, up to chapter 19 about the kind of famous story in one sense or another about Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that happens there with the character of Lot. And I think whether we're Christian or not, we can all agree, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a pretty well understood story, uh, at least in one sense, maybe even a shallow sense to people that they've heard about it. And next week, we're going to get into chapter 21, which is also a relatively famous story regarding, you know, God giving the miraculous offspring of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. Isaac is kind of a, a famous story that uh, if you grew up in the church, especially you heard a lot in, you know, children's ministry. And that's something that is probably taught on. But today, actually, we find ourselves in kind of a, an obscure in-between chapter in chapter 20, which is a much lesser known chapter that's kind of just squeezed in between these massive chunks of Sodom and Gomorrah and the long-awaited birth of Isaac, Abraham's promised son. And I will say I was personally tempted to just skip this chapter altogether. And I think no one would have bat an eye. But I was just something about this past week i was just convicted that man the holy spirit was preventing me from just bypassing it because all of scripture is god breathed and I, I personally take a lot of joy in the fact that our church for the most part we're just going straight through genesis without really skipping anything so if you have your bibles let's kind of see what this lesser known chapter is about so if you have your bibles turn to genesis chapter 20 i'll go ahead and read it for us we'll read verse 1 all the way through verse 13 before we get into the message for today. So again, this is after the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, if the narrative picks up and basically, again, there's this kind of interesting episode that happens. So let's start in chapter 20, verse 1, all the way to verse 13. It's the reading of God's word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you, have whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. 
Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did this because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. And we'll stop there. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Now, uh, I would be surprised if a lot of us here are familiar with what's going on here. And to kind of kick us off, you know, one of the things I've come to learn about life that is true for most, if not all people, is that uh, old habits die hard. That's a very famous saying. And basically, if you haven't heard that saying before, it basically means it is really hard to stop doing certain things if we've been doing them for a long time. Even though those habits differ, depending on the person and the situation, old habits definitely do die hard. And I, I know in my own life, it's so frustrating because, yeah, I think uh, as I grow, I can see a lot of progress in many areas of my life ever since I went to college and then I graduated and I became independent and married and now I'm a father. But despite, you know, general progress in a lot of areas of my life, I have to admit, there are some very clear bad habits that I have the hardest time overcoming. For example, a very silly one uh, that I had ever since I was in high school. I have this really bad, ha hopefully this doesn't affect your view of me, but I have this really bad habit and tendency to take off my socks in the most random parts of the house and just leave them lying around. And it's pretty embarrassing because, man, there's been times where before COVID when guests would come over and, you know, outside the home, people know me as like, oh, Pastor Sam, or at least they know I'm like a decently respectable person, but they'll like come over, they'll like sit on my couch and then one of my socks will be like next to them, like in the crevice of the couch or the sofa. And man, there's been multiple times when we do the laundry and as we're folding the laundry, I have like mismatched socks because all my socks have gone missing. So we kind of have an unofficial Easter egg hunt trying to go looking for my socks. And, you know, as silly as this example might be, you know, I am confident, you know, a lot of us, we have bad habits and tendencies that are hard to shake. Habits that we might be embarrassed of if they came to light and maybe that we're frustrated by because we genuinely are trying to change in them. But I think in a more serious sense, I think this applies to not just the surface level habits like leaving clothes laying around, but spiritually speaking, I think it applies to habitual sin. Habitual sins that we wrestle with, habitual sins that we just can't seem to shake, habitual sins that even though we have a lot of progress in our Christian lives, certain habitual sins that it seems like we just can't shake ever since we became Christian. And through today's text, we're going to see, you know, Abraham, he also struggled with one very particular habitual sin in his journey of faith. And the reason that we as fallen sinners should be thankful for chapters like this one is because it really brings the journey of faith down to earth in a sense, because we can't help but realize that Abraham, this otherwise mighty father of faith, is actually just like us in so many ways. In that man, there's moments where his faith in God seems so fickle. Now, in case you don't know what it means to be fickle, to be fickle literally just means it's very, it fluctuates. It changes frequently. It is unstable, particularly when it comes to being loyal. Someone who is fickle, it means that your loyalty kind of wavers. And the reason Abraham's faith in today's text seems especially fickle is because the last time we saw Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah is in chapter 18. 
And man, in chapter 18, we see kind of the more what you expect the man of faith to be, right? He's kind of in this mountaintop journey with God. He's having this amazing conversation where he's interceding on the behalf of the people of Sodom. And he's saying, God, can you spare them if there's a few righteous people? I don't know if you remember that message. And really, it is the picture of a man who's very selfless. He's really full of faith. He's considering the well-being of others. And to be honest, it would have honestly been the perfect precursor for God to pick up on and to now fulfill his promise in giving Abraham this long-awaited son in chapter 21. But instead, we see in chapter 20, after that event, after the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, for some reason, in a divinely inspired God, Abraham's journey picks up and he journeys to this new area and he goes right back to this old habit of lying, essentially. Lying about what? Lying about the identity of who his wife, Sarah, is. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. It says, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev, lived between Kadesh and Shur. And immediately it says, verse 2, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So basically, summer, Abraham enters this new territory. And he realizes, hey, this is a new territory. There's a new king of the land. And he's going to probably want to kill me if he knows that I have this beautiful wife, Sarah. So he says, hey, Sarah. Can you lie and say that you're my sister? Now, it seems a little bit abrupt how it goes literally straight to that. And the writer is actually presuming that you understand this is not the first time this has happened. Because if you followed Abraham's journey through Genesis, it should sound oddly familiar. In fact, it's so familiar to what had happened before that some people even argue like this is like the same story. Now, it's not because there are nuances, but it literally is nearly identical to what happens 25 years earlier in Genesis 12 when they go to Egypt and he does the same exact thing. He tells his wife, Sarah, lie and say that you're my sister in order to protect my well-being. So if I can use my analogy, Abraham's dirty sock, in a sense, is this habitual pattern of deception that we see. And as readers who are tracking this journey of faith, we should be frustrated. I was pretty frustrated because you would expect and hope, man, that there should be progress and there should be growth. And, and from chapter 12 until now, 25 years is a long time, right? Like you would expect a 50-year-old Christian should have a little more progress than a 25-year-old Christian. And God has clearly done some amazing works and revealed himself in amazing ways. But despite all of that, even though in some senses Abraham has grown, in another sense, you can make the argument that it seems like he hasn't grown at all because he literally goes back to the same old sin. And as we see that, what I would ask of all of us is like, man, in your journey of faith, if you're a Christian sitting here today, aren't we the same exact way? Isn't one description that can be said of our faith that it is quite fickle a lot of the time? Like, don't we have habitual sins that we struggle with that literally just don't seem to go away? And with that context in mind, I kind of hope to accomplish two main things from the text. First, I really want to delve into, you know, the lens and the perspective of this text when it comes to habitual sin. And so first, I hope we can better understand the nature of habitual sin and how do we can fight it. But secondly, I hope that we can also be encouraged that, man, despite our constant failings and the feeling of literally we're going back to square one in our faith, that God, despite all of that, is still faithful and gracious in loving us. So let's look at kind of the nature of our habitual sins. 
Now, this might be a little TMI, and I think I have shared this before in a sermon, but you know, one of the things that I have regularly dealt with for many years is I have a lot of frequent stomach aches and diarrhea. <laughs> Very TMI, I'm sure. But if you do relate to me, I'm sure deep, there's like a deep resonation we have. And for years, I'm not going to lie, I just accepted that, you know, a few times a week, I'm just going to get really bad stomach aches after certain meals, and I will have frequent unpleasant trips to the restroom. And the reason I just embraced this as a part of my life is like, that's just the way it is. It's not going to change. But also, I, I told myself, it's not that big of a deal. So whatever, that's just kind of be a normal part of my life. And I remember after countless times that my wife, Angela, encouraged me to get it checked out, get it checked out, finally went to the doctor. And to no one's surprise, the doctor was like, hey, Sam, that's a very unhealthy habit. And you really got to get to the root of it because you're kind of tolerating it and you're just letting it be a part of your life right now. And you're probably doing that because you don't realize it's going to have serious long-term effects if you don't deal with it. And so he kind of gave me a checklist of things to look at to diagnose why this bad habit may have started in the first place, why I developed in my life. And in a similar way, I think our text, it gives us three interconnected reasons based off Abraham's example that I think might help us get to the root and the deeper issue of why we have such a hard time overcoming habitual sin in our lives. Three interconnected reasons. The first reason I think we have a hard time overcoming habitual sins is, number one, we normalize them. We normalize them. If you don't read carefully through our text today, you know, it's easy to think that Abraham only lied about Sarah two times, right? Back in chapter 12 in Egypt and today in chapter 20 when they're sojourning in Gerar before Abimelech the king. Now, there's a small detail. I hope you look at your text in verse 13. The second half of verse 13 actually tells us Abraham likely committed this sin a lot more habitually and regularly than we might think. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 13. Abraham makes this deal with Sarah and he says, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. In this verse, we see this was not a one or two time anomaly this pattern of deception that Abraham was encouraging. But Abraham literally told Sarah, every new place we go to, I want you to lie and tell people that I'm your brother and not your husband. In other words, what this verse tells us is, man, sins become habitual and sins become persistent when you begin to normalize them into the routine of your life. For example, it's clear, Abraham clearly established Sarah, this is going to be our norm. This is going to be our MO. This is going to be our routine and our protocol wherever we go. Now, what might this look like for us? Well, let's start with the example given here before us, because something as simple as a seemingly innocent lie is something I'm sure a lot of us struggle with today, right? And I'm going to particularly harp on sins that I think people, it's kind of a gray area that they don't really see it as a sin, because guess what? Lying, deception is probably one of the more underemphasized forms of sin today that kind of takes a backseat to seemingly more serious sins, right? Like, like murder or adultery. But I think it's pretty clear in scripture, you know, lying, bearing a false witness, being deceptive, those are sins. Those are clearly sinful things in God's eyes. I mean, it's even included as part of the Ten Commandments. Or let me highlight another underemphasized sin that I think is rampant today, which is covetousness. Did you know the Bible says that coveting, aka strongly desiring and wanting someone else's belongings or seeing someone else's well-being and desiring what they have, that that actually is not an innocent little desire, but that actually is a form of idolatry and that if remain unchecked is sinful. 
I mean, is that not literally what Instagram and Pinterest is? A breeding ground of covetousness. Now, this isn't a sermon about lying or coveting, so I could easily talk more about those things, but I won't. But I think the point is this. If we begin to embrace and normalize sinful behaviors and habits into our lifestyle, I think what we'll see is that that serves as the soil that allows habitual sin to really fester and grow in our hearts and in our lives. That's the first thing. Abraham had normalized it with Sarah. And the natural follow-up question is, well, how could Abraham, how could any of us as people of faith allow sin to be normalized in our life, right? Like, how, how does that happen? Which leads to the second reason, which is this. We not only have a hard time overcoming sin because we normalize it, but we often normalize it because we justify them. We justify them. You see, when God shows up to Abimelech and tells him Abraham had deceived him, Abimelech confronts Abraham. Okay, God uses Abimelech to expose Abraham. And in verse 19, Abimelech comes to Abraham and says, Dude, Abraham, why did you lie to me? <laughs> like, why'd you do that? So he's exposing him. And instead of confessing and owning the sin, I mean, Abraham literally could have just said, you know, what? That's my, that's my bad. I lied. That's my fault. Abraham instead does what a lot of us do when it comes to sin in our lives. He just gives excuses. And he justifies and rationalizes before Abimelech why he felt the need to lie. So let's see what he gives. He gives three excuses. Number one, first he says he did it out of fear. Look at verse 11. When confronted, Abraham said, you know, Abimelech, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, this excuse is interesting. I want to dissect it just for just a little bit. Abraham, and please catch me here, okay? Abraham says, I lied and the reason he lied is based off a presumption rather than an actual objective reality. This is interesting to know, okay? Because immediately prior in verse 10, Abimelech is like, not only why did you do this, but he's so confused because he's like, what did I possibly do to you? So in verse 10, he says, what did you see, Abraham, that you did this thing? And here's what Abraham says. He says, I lied and I saw because I thought, okay, I thought. This is all in Abraham's head. I thought you didn't fear God and that you would kill me if you knew that I was Sarah's husband. Now, if you actually read the text, though, you will see that that wasn't necessarily true. Because even though Abimelech wasn't a part of God's covenant people, and even though he very well may have been this barbaric new king, the text actually indicates and implies based off his behavior that he did kind of have a common grace fear of God. And that he kind of actually was a pretty righteous man that would have taken the sin of adultery very seriously. That's what the text seems to indicate. And so what we see from this justification is that a lot of the times we commit sins based off false presumptions than actual reality. Let me give an example of that. Married couples or dating couples, for example, there's so many times where I will grow bitter and get angry at my wife, Angela, or get super passive aggressive, because that's just kind of how I grew up. I grew up in not a, a fiery volcano type home, but a very cold war type home. Like the worst thing I will do to you is I will shut you out. So I'll do that sometimes. And the reason I will give is because of something that I believe to be true that actually is not true at all. Happens all the time. And so when Angela graciously confronts me and she said, hey, you're being really mean or hey, you're being really cold to me and you're not treating me well, instead of owning it and confessing it, you know what I say? I justify it by saying, well, well, I thought you felt this way. I thought you weren't being appreciative of me. I like how one pastor puts it. I hope you can kind of sit on this one. 
Fear makes you see things that aren't really there. Fear makes you see things that aren't really there. And there's so much that could be drawn out of that in principle, and we don't have time for it. But I think it's worth reflecting in our own lives if maybe some of the fears we have are, are, are perpetuating realities and presumptions that actually are not even true and are causing us into an unhealthy trajectory of lifestyle. And so it really is a poor excuse if you think about it that a lot of us fall into, but it is an excuse nonetheless. And so Abraham says, well, I did it because I thought you would kill me, even though he really wouldn't have. And so secondly, he said, not only did I do it based off that, but he gets into technicalities, right? He says, you know, Abimelech, not only was I afraid, but I technically didn't lie. Look at verse 12. He says, besides, she, she, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So Abram continues this justification of his actions because he's saying, you know, Abimelech, actually, technically, I didn't lie because Sarah is actually like my half-sister. And if you didn't know this, technically, that's true. That Abram and Sarah actually did share the same father, but different mothers. And through this justification, I'm, I'm purposely over-exaggerating when I say the word technically. I want to make this simple observation. God is not interested in your technicalities. He's concerned about the heart. He doesn't look at the external. He looks at the internal. He's not interested in perception. He's interested in intention. So Abraham clearly had the intention to deceive. As readers, we all know that it is blatant and clear as day, but habitual sin, what it does is it will put you into this fluffy world of technicalities where a lot of us subconsciously allow habitual sins to remain in our lives because we rationalize their existence based on technicalities in our head rather than actually fighting and confessing them with repentance in our hearts. Let me say that again. If the realm where you're dealing with your sins is primarily rationalizing their existence in your head, you have to understand Christians are supposed to deal with sin from the heart. Very different things. Thirdly, he not only lives in technicalities, but the excuse he gives, even though it's a subtle one, is he essentially blames God. Look at what he says in verse 13. And by the way, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, this is why I said to her, this is a kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Save me. He is my brother. So not only does Abraham say, you know, I did this because I was afraid and I thought that you were a certain way, even though you really weren't. Not only does he defend himself by saying, you know, I didn't technically lie because she technically is my half sister. But he also says, you know, uh, beyond all of that, I actually had to do this because God, this God that I worship, he caused me to wander from my father's house. And that's actually what led me to have to tell Sarah to do this. God caused me to do this. Because in the comfort of my father's house and the safety of my father, I probably would not have to employ this strategy. But because God told me to wander, I had to come up with this scheme and strategy to protect myself. And it's a tough pill to swallow for a lot of us. But I think if we're really put into a corner, a lot of us would actually justify our habitual sin by blaming our circumstances or our situations that subconsciously, whether or not, we actually subconsciously blame God for putting us in. Like, God, if you didn't put me in this extended season of employment, I would not have to do that. Or God, if you didn't put me around this person that really pisses me off all the time, I wouldn't have to do that. But God, it's because of what you did and where you've placed me. Well, what can I do? That's what's going on here. So we see through Abraham, we struggle habitual sin because we normalize it. We justify it. And third and last, we struggle with it because we personalize our sins. 
Now, personalized may not be the clearest word, so let me explain what I mean by personalized. By personalized, I mean what we what we do is we make our sins purely about us. We make it about us. So what Abraham's habitual sin reveals is that the primary person that he was concerned about and thinking about when he was committing this sin was Abraham. We know this because back in chapter 12, he literally says to Sarah, say you're my sister so that it will go well with me. In verse 11, he says, I did this because I thought they would kill me. In verse 13, he says, do this kindness for me. In other words, I think what this shows is that at the heart of especially all sins for sure, but I think especially habitual persistent sins, it really is a deep love and obsession with the self with little to no consideration for how those sins will hurt and affect others. For example, the most obvious person affected in this situation we read about is clearly Sarah. Sarah's the one whose body and livelihood is at stake, right? But Abraham's obsession to care for himself and his well-being basically puts his wife at the mercy and liberty of other men and Pharaoh and King Abimelech to basically do with her as they please. And not only does that text tell us that, but it peels out from a macro point of view and says, did you know Abraham's sin literally almost caused the judgment and destruction of an entire nation? That's what it says in verse 9. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, dude, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? And if you read the text, literally had God not intervened, Abraham's sin would have brought destruction and judgment upon an entire innocent nation. But Abraham wasn't thinking about that. Abraham wasn't thinking about how his actions were going to hurt his wife or other people or the nation. All Abraham was thinking about was himself. His concern was, was himself, what was in it for him. And this self-obsessive preoccupation with personal fulfillment and personal safety without a care or concern for how our sins may hurt and affect others really is the foundation that allows habitual sins to not only persist, but I think to evolve and grow in our lives. One pastor puts it this way. The consequences of sin are more like bomb shrapnel rather than sniper fire. And I know as cheesy as that sounds, I, I like that illustration because basically what he's getting at is, you know, I think the reason so many people dabble with habitual sin is because the consequences of sin rarely manifest immediately. Because if they did, I don't think as many people would be committing. But they do so much damage in the same way that bomb shrapnel does over a wide period of time and over a wide range of people. And I think this is so true. Because I think the lie that Satan plants into every habitual sin is that it is a personal, harmless endeavor that can be controlled and concealed. For example, I honestly don't think anybody gets drunk with the intention to harm people. I really don't. But yet we hear of innocent people all the time, with no fault of their own, losing their lives abruptly because they get hit and killed by a drunk driver. Nobody thinks about that, but it happens all the time. Or what might be all the more relevant in this season is, you know, a lot of us might be tempted to think, you know, what's the harm in missing Sunday worship? What's the harm in not gathering with God's people? It doesn't hurt anyone. Like no one's going to care if I don't tune in. And without knowing it, we develop this unhealthy habit. Now, I won't go all the way to say to the point that it's actually sin, although there, you could make the argument that it is exhorted and commanded in the scripture to not forsake the gathering, but I won't get there. But here's the point. 
that if you develop that habit of having no issue with the forsaking of the gathering of the saints to worship God, hear from his word, even though it's explicitly exhorted in scripture, and maybe you think, well, it doesn't harm me. It don't harm anyone else. But have you realized, well, what if that habit trickles down into the culture of your home, into the trickle down into the culture and understanding of your current or future children? And that prevents them from caring about Sunday worship. And your habitual sin leaks into their perspective. And it may very well be that the Sunday that the gospel message was going to save their soul, they're not there because they think, well, my dad told me it's not important. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody thinks about how your sins will affect others. All you think about is in the moment, how does it make me feel? And that's why so many people dabble with sin. And I know that sounds serious, but the point is sin, by definition, will always have negative effects. And the reason we keep flippantly dabbling in it is because we never really understand how harmful and far-reaching the effects of our sins and habitual behaviors can be and have on those around us, oftentimes those we love the most. Probably the most recent heartbreaking news that you may have heard about, it's a pretty big deal in the evangelical community, is a report of Ravi Zacharias. He is one of the most well-known Christian apologists. If you YouTube anything about defending Christianity or you know Christian apologetics, he's probably one of the top three that will show up. I've personally sat under his teaching. I've read books from him. He literally probably had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that have been influenced and taught under his teaching. And recently it was revealed that he had a hidden habitual sin of sexual immorality. And it was kind of one of those people were hoping it's not true, but his own ministry, the Ravi Zacharias ministry, corroborated it and actually validated that it's true. And if you read the report in the fine print, it says that a lot of the reasons we see in today's text were actually probably the reasons that he allowed habitual sin to fester in his life, which is a personalization and justification of the sin that led to its normalization in his private life. And sin in the life of the believer is always supposed to be confessed and resisted, not normalized and justified. And it breaks my heart because guess what? Now, because of that, do you know how many people have ammunition against the validity, credibility, and truthfulness of God's word? So many people. And we forget to realize that even for someone like Abraham, as believers, as Christians, we are a walking testimony of who our God is. And in one sense, you give reasons for why people should follow God. But oftentimes we do quite the opposite, which we give them every reason to not follow God. And so it breaks my heart when I hear people say, I like Christ, but I don't like Christians because they look nothing like Christ. And the reason that happens is because nobody cares about holiness anymore. Nobody cares about genuinely bearing fruit anymore. Everyone just wants to get out of hell and they want to be cool with God, but they want to dabble enough in the world where it doesn't look any different. And the church has no witness whatsoever. And that really does break my heart. Because that's not how Christians are supposed to deal with sin. And yet the struggle for a lot of us, including myself, I'm sure, is we fail all the time. Our faith is so fickle. I mean, one moment we can have genuine aspirations to pursue godliness. And the very next hour, we're stuck in the same habitual sins, right? We're yelling at family members. We're acting out of anger. We're falling into lust. We're neglecting the fellowship of the saints. And so that's the Abraham we see in chapter 20, right? Such a, such a 
sad picture before the beautiful picture of God's fulfillment of bringing Isaac. Isn't that so true? And again, this is not a fresh Abraham in his relationship with God. This is almost a hundred year old Abraham. He is a seasoned believer 25 years after God had initially promised to bless him. And that was what that basically tells me is I don't care if you're 50 years old. I don't care if you've been a Christian a long time. I don't care if you're the oldest person in the church, the very same sins that you probably struggle when you first became a Christian. I'm like hundred percent sure that they're still plaguing you in your life because if Abraham struggled with it, you struggle with it. And so this culture of you graduate spiritually as a Christian is not biblical. Don't presume that just because you're older, you're doing better with God. And the second that you think you got Christianity figured out, 1 Corinthians says, take heed lest you fall. It, it kind of, it, it really infuses this humility in us that, man, if Abraham in the, the peak of his relationship with God is still struggling with the same old sins, most likely most other people are. So don't shy away from confessing and accountability because, man, that is telling to a lot of us. So the question then is, why is this chapter here? That was my, my main question. Literally until just a few days ago, I was wrestling with God. Should I skip it? Should I skip it? Should I skip it? But I could not get over this fact of, but why is it here? Why is it in this text? Why is it in the Bible? Why include it? And more specifically, so what's God going to do with Abraham? What's he going to do? That's the question I was asking. Because he screwed up majorly again, right? And that's where I was so thankful that the covenant really, it's about God. It's about God and his faithfulness and his protection over his covenant promise. It's not about Abraham or us or how we deserve it or how we earned our place. It's really about how man basically does everything, whether we know it or not, to thwart God's covenant promise. And God intervenes and makes it happen anyways. You see, this story is so much bigger than Abraham. From Abraham's perspective, all he saw was his safety and his well-being. But what Abraham didn't realize was that by Abraham's sins and mistakes, the fruition of God's covenant was literally at stake because of his sin, right? And I'm going to have to zoom through some details because of time. But if Abimelech had actually ended up sleeping with Sarah, which Abraham technically would have permitted, it would have robbed Sarah, the covenant promise and vehicle to which Isaac was going to come. It would have robbed her of her purity and it would have discredited Isaac's legitimacy as the promised offspring from God. Because people could have very well deduced and thought, well, maybe Isaac is actually Abimelech's son. Maybe he's not Abraham's son. And commentators actually say it's very possible that Sarah was actually pregnant with Isaac during this time. Because in about a year, you're going to see Isaac is born. And while Abraham's actions jeopardize God's covenant, we see in this text, God's not going to let that happen. He is relentless to intervene, to remain faithful to his covenant. He shows up to Abimelech literally in a dream, tells him to return Sarah to Abraham, to not touch her. In fact, he says, you couldn't have touched her because I prevented you from doing it. And if you have questions about that, stick around for the Q&A. The first thing we see is that God is not a God who's going to be allow humans to thwart his covenant promise. And humans and Satan try to do that throughout the Old Testament. Not going to let it happen. But more importantly, I think what I really appreciate and we'll kind of end with this idea is that God not only will intervene and act to advance his purposes despite our failures. But what of the failures, the failing people like Abraham, like us? How does God treat and respond to Abraham in light of his sin? Look at verse seven. God tells Abimelech, look how he refers to Abraham. Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Now, what's going on here? This is the first time we see the word prophet appear in scripture. It's kind of a, an upgraded title for Abraham, if I can put it that way. And basically, God tells Abimelech, after Abraham commits this grave sin, 
return that man to Abraham because Abraham, he's one of my own. He's a, he's a prophet. He's my spokesperson. He's my representative. I mean, you would think that God would be angry with Abraham, right? Like the last thing you want to call your, your spouse or significant other after a major failure on their part is like, sweetie, honey, or my love. It's probably more like you or hey or sinner. But on the contrary, despite Abraham's sin, God associates with Abraham. He identifies with him and even says, he's my prophet. He's my spokesperson. And the crazy irony, which should humble all of us, is he not only calls him prophet, but he actually uses Abraham, sinful Abraham, to bring healing upon Abimelech and his family. I mean, talk about exhibit A of God uses broken and sinful people still to accomplish his purposes. That, man, if you feel unqualified and you feel like, man, but I struggle so much with this. If God used Abraham in the midst of his sin, God can use you in the midst of your sin. And what's crazy is that after this moment, the reason it's not often taught about this story is you basically never hear about this story again. The New Testament references Abraham a couple of times. And every time it does, it's usually a positive reference saying that, you know, Abraham was a man of faith who believed in God and God counted to him as righteousness. And what that should tell us and why that should confuse us is, well, there's clearly moments Abraham does not seem very righteous. Isn't that right? Like he seems pretty unrighteous, if anything. And on the scales of balance, he seems like at the very least, it's like 60% righteousness, 40% unrighteousness. And yet God kind of seems to overlook that. And he just credits to him and views him as righteous. And if I can use this analogy, I think the one of the most beautiful things about what the nature of grace is, is that God grades his people in Christ on a curve. Man, I don't know about you, but back in the day when I took a test and I knew I got a bad grade and suddenly I look at it and it says that I did far better than I actually did. And I learned about this miraculous teaching tool called the curve. <laughs> wow. You know what a curve is? It's you getting credited and graded for higher than something you actually deserve. That's what a curve is. And that's what God seems to be doing with not only Abraham, but in Christ, what God does with all those who place their faith in him. And why that should humble this is, you know, affirmation from God, if it's deserved, it's rewarding, but it's burdensome. Because it depends on you. But affirmation God, when it isn't deserved, it's grace. It's humbling. Could you imagine how Abraham must feel that despite ups and downs, he goes right back to rock bottom, deceiving faithlessness, not trusting in God. And then God says, he's my prophet, Abraham, I'm going to use you. And in fact, here's that son that I promised. Holy moly. <laughs> like, that's not the ideal situation. I would think that God would do that. And it just tells you so much about the reason why we might feel uncomfortable is because we're so works-based. We think that God will only show up and bless us when in moments of deserving. And yet we see that God's greatest blessing in the life of Abraham happens in his moment of greatest undeserving. And that's what the gospel is, church, that in our sin, despite God knowing the depths of our heart, that while we were sinners, that while we were still sinners, that was actually the perfect opportune time for him to reveal grace because grace flourishes and abounds all the more when we are wallowing in our sin. And in the same way that God intervenes and is faithful to the covenant promise, 
We're going to see this continue all the way to God's greatest intervention, the intervention that is leading to in all of redemptive history. And it's going to reach a climax at the birth of not just Isaac, but the birth that's going to come through the birth of Isaac, who is God's own son, Jesus. And you're going to see he's going to come. He's going to come to intervene because man could not save ourselves. He's going to die for our sins so that we can be graded mm -hmm. on the grace curve, counted righteous before God. And I can't wait because we're going to celebrate soon that with Easter and Holy Week and how precious and great would it be that all of us, I know for a fact right now, if you're put into a corner, you will say you are not doing well spiritually. I don't know one single person that has told me they're thriving right now with God. Most of us feel self-condemned. Most of us feel guilty. Most of us are checked out. I give major props to you who even have your camera turned on. Who knows what everyone else is doing? And I don't even blame you because I'd probably be doing the same thing. But my point is this. I, I, I don't care what it is because that's how great the cross really is. Because when you show up for Easter, the Easter season and the death of Christ is not going to be about how, oh my God, I feel so dirty to come before God. But it's because you are dirty, come before God. Because you literally wasted an entire year of pandemic and you have done nothing to significantly impact your walk with God. And because you feel so spiritually far and you've cared about almost everything else but God, that's why you need to come. That's why the gospel is there. That's why Jesus invites you. Don't get your act together because you can't. That's why God has to intervene. So that's what the cross shows. So before we get there, if I can kind of give a preemptive, how do you prepare for that? Number one, fight your habitual sins. Don't normalize them. Don't justify them. Don't personalize them. Because I really, really think if you see scripture with the eyes that the Holy Spirit allows you to see them with, sins, they have consequences. The greatest of those being nailing Christ to the cross. But they have legitimate consequences that will spread in, in ways and to people that you may not even know about. So fight them. But secondly, at the same time, don't be overly discouraged or condemn yourself. Because the very, very overemphasized theme of who God is, is that he is a gracious, covenant-keeping, forgiving, loving God. And Christ is the perfect example of that. And so I hope that you can take courage. I can't wait till we can meet again, hopefully. But until then, hopefully this just slightly wakes up our spiritual impulses and muscles to realize that, hey, it's important. And God is this kind of God in our life. Let's pray together.